0: You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Uh, many of you know, but I just wanted to, to say, uh, you know, as a family, we stand in the good times and the bad times, right? We're together in everything, and the Bakers lost their home this last week last Sunday evening, and uh, I just want to say I'm impressed by the pouring out of love from this family, and so we love you guys, we're with you. Um, Painful, difficult moment, but God's going to work through it, right? Awesome to have you guys here. So um, yes, it's Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. Um, You know, sometimes, I don't know if Heather's planning it, but you know, we do the little you know, things and they make them into the cross, the, the actual palm leaves and, and all that kind of stuff. So today I'm I'm gonna read the Palm Sunday story just to start, you know, Jesus' entry into the city, but I'm actually gonna not focus on that at all. I'm gonna focus on what happens immediately after his entrance. Okay? So let's just start though with the story. Um, we you know, we're on Palm Sunday, it's the week before we celebrate Easter. You know Jesus' death on Friday coming up. We celebrate that and and just kind of uh, really let it sink into us what Jesus accomplished on the cross and why He had to die on the cross for us. And then we celebrate Easter because uh, you know honestly the reason we celebrate the cross without Jesus on it is because He's not there, right? Because as much as the death of Jesus was necessary, it would have meant nothing. Without his resurrection. And so his resurrection is really ultimately where we're leading, right? It's what this series has been about, all for love. You know, we started in Genesis, and that since the beginning of time, God's heart is for love for his people. And we're going to continue that, that kind of thinking today and end up, you know, obviously with the price that Jesus paid on the cross and that he was resurrected for us. For us, for you and I, for every person who's ever breathed, ever lived, God died for us and was resurrected for us. And so this morning, I'm going to pick up, let's start in Matthew 21. We're going to read quickly through the first 11 scriptures, just about Jesus' entry into the city. So as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. A prophecy from You know, the Old Testament. And it says the two disciples did as Jesus commanded, they brought the donkey and the colt to him, and they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. That's what we did this morning. We worshipped. We reoriented our hearts and our lives to remember who is God in our lives. And that's what even this kind of moment was taking place. They were remembering this prophecy that they've had about a Messiah and a Savior who would come and save them. And really, you know, and actually when we get to the you know, verse 11, they're going to just say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Because most of the people just believed he was a good prophet, a good rabbi. But this day, they started, the crowds really started to think, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And, and if you've been around our church at all, I talk about this often, about how the Jews were looking for a very specific type of Savior. Someone who would come and really free them from the Roman Empire, who would free them, you know, from the tyranny they were living in, and would set up a new literal government in the world that would rule over everyone. That's what they were thinking the Savior was going to do. It's why just a few days later, they're so mad at him, they kill him. Because he doesn't fulfill what they thought he was going to do. And so here they are starting to believe he's the Messiah. They're laying it down, and they're they're quoting uh, Scripture and Psalms, actually. And then they said in verse 10, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They all asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so here we are in Palm Sunday, a couple thousand years later, celebrating this moment leading to what we know as Easter, as Resurrection Sunday. And the crowds were having this expectation of Jesus, this expectation of what their Savior was supposed to look like. But I don't really want to focus there today. As much as I, I want to celebrate Palm Sunday, we're, it's still Palm Sunday that we're celebrating. We're just going to celebrate the story that takes place right after that. So let's move on. Verse 12. Jesus then entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. All right. You know, we we love to celebrate these moments, but, you know, like Palm Sunday and Jesus coming into the city. But honestly, this moment in Jesus' life is really pivotal for us to understand the nature of our Father, even the nature of Jesus. The thing that I take solace in this moment is even Jesus gets angry. That should make some of you feel better. It makes me feel better. You know, we, we sometimes picture God, or we picture Jesus up in heaven, kind of almost in this clinical, sterile, emotional person. Like he's just up there with his rod, and you know, the blueprint of life is just playing out exactly how he thought it was, and he has no emotion, and it's just kind of the way God is. But yet we see God, as a man here on earth, having some extreme emotions, flipping over tables, knocking people out of their chairs. That's what bullies do in high school. He's kicking people out of their chairs for selling birds, flipping over tables that were exchanging money for people. Now, let me just say this. This is not a new thing in the temple. This isn't like Jesus shows up, And they're doing something so blasphemous that they didn't do last week that he's mad and he flips the tables. No, actually, this has been going on for a long time. It had become a norm of the temple court. That you would come in, and there's so many things wrong with the scenario, I could preach on many of them. (laughs) But they're coming into the courts of the temple... And people, you know, so Jesus sees all this. This is how they're treating the temple of God. And he gets pretty angry over it. And there's a lot of reasons. I want to focus on the main one today. I mean, I'll just, I'll just mention one, too. First off, when, when the whole sacrificial system was set up in Leviticus, the idea of bringing a sacrifice to the Lord was meant, meant to be that it was something that you cherished and something that was your best. So to buy your sacrifice was kind of a ridiculous notion. It wasn't the intention of God. The intention of it was a symbolistic act to say, God, here's my best. Not, here's the most convenient thing I could find when I walked in the doors. Do you see the difference? Don't we sometimes approach God like that? Hey, Jesus, here's, here's the most convenient thing I can do for you today. I've got five minutes in between my appointments. Rather than giving God our best. And so that was the first thing wrong with it. But the bigger thing that Jesus actually speaks to, he actually quotes some scripture. He says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Actually, he quotes two different scriptures there. He kind of combines two. One's from Isaiah when he talks about The temple being a house of prayer. And then another one is from Jeremiah where Jeremiah is basically telling the Israelite people that they're a den of thieves. And he's also quoting that scripture. And so Jesus is confronting something they're doing wrong. And I want to talk about why. Usually this story, when it's been preached about or when you've maybe heard about it, it's all about the money changing. It's all about the fact that they're selling things in the court, which is wrong. They shouldn't be doing it. But what Jesus says here, and this is my opinion, my perspective, directs me to think there's a bigger issue that Jesus is upset about. And that's why he quotes scripture about something referenced in Isaiah calling the temple a house of prayer. So I want to go there with you. Um, It's Isaiah 56. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones, you can go there. I'm sure it'll be behind me. But Isaiah 56, and I want to read... Honestly, the beginning of it, because this chapter is the Lord. So, so Isaiah is a prophet, right? And he's hearing from God and he's writing down what he hears from God for his people. So, this is God speaking, okay? As Isaiah writes it. We're going to start right in verse 1. It says, This is what the Lord says Isaiah 56. Be just and fair to all, do what is right and good. For I am coming soon to rescue you. Quick note, when Jesus says soon or when God says soon, it's not the same soon we understand. This, this, this year, I wrote it down on there just for that note, was 740 years before Jesus came around. Okay, I'm coming soon to rescue you. And to display my righteousness among you, blessed are all those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath days of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. So so God is speaking. He's basically saying, hey, as my people, blessed are you if you act this way. And and I'm coming soon to rescue you. And and then we get to verse 3 and he says this. This is really important stuff. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say... The Lord will never let me be part of his people. Now this honestly, in their day, should be a very shocking statement. Because what had happened with the Israelites, maybe it's happened with some Americans too, is they began to believe they were better than everyone else. They thought because God had taken... You know, the Israelites out of Egypt and then Abraham and all of the, the promises over Abraham to be God's people. And the Israelites became the Hebrew people and the Hebrew became the Jews. And they, they thought there was this like perfect little group of people that God had created and they were the only ones that God loved. They were the only ones God blessed and they were the ones that were God's people. But we come even into the Old Testament and we see right from the beginning. Now, I, God used a people... And I want to say a people, to model to the rest of the world what his nature was supposed to be like. Does that sound familiar? I hope it does. It's supposed to be you. God has a people. He has a church. And his intention behind us is to model to the rest of the world his nature, his goodness, his love for mankind. That's what he's always been doing. It was supposed to be through Adam. Then it was through Abraham and his children. Then it was through the Israelite people and the Hebrew people and the Jewish people. And now it's through his church. He's trying to show the world since the beginning of time the nature of his love for humanity. But what happened with the Israelites is they thought it was all about them. They forgot what they were here for. And so even in Isaiah, God is saying, Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be part of his people. So God's literally correcting foreigners in the midst of the Israelite people that were thinking of themselves not as good as the Israelites or not a part of his people. He was saying, don't let them say that. And then he goes on to say more. And don't let the eunuch say. So here's just another group of people that we're less than. If you don't know what a eunuch is, Google it later and don't click images. Some of you are laughing because you know what a eunuch is. The rest of you are like, I'm not sure what a eunuch is. Yeah, it's okay. But they were less than people. (laughs) I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. This is the God of the eunuchs describing to these outside people groups who felt they were less than the Israelites, that they were one of his family. And that he would make them their name great, and that he would include them in. And he's reminding them of this. And then he says this, I will also bless the foreigners. Verse 6 here, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. And here is where Jesus quotes. Because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, this was a revolutionary thought actually. Because the Jewish people had become so myopic and so focused on themselves that they had forgotten that God was really just using them to model to the world his goodness. And so he's, he's kind of using Isaiah to remind them, like, listen, the foreigners and the eunuchs and the ones that you cast out and the ones you think less of, they're just a part of my people just like you are. And he makes this statement That Jesus then quotes back to in Isaiah, "My, my temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. And the point was this inclusiveness of all nations. So now let me give you just a little bit of history that's not specifically very well spelled out in the Bible. The court that Jesus came into and became angry in where he flipped the tables was called the court of the Gentiles. You see, what happened when they built the temple, God actually made them build a certain specific court to include Gentiles. Now, Gentiles literally just means not Jews. (laughs) It's everybody else. Everybody else that's not Jewish in nature, they're a Gentile. And so the temple was actually designed to include people who weren't Jewish. But what happened was the Jews said, that court's not important. And they filled it. They filled it with money changers. They filled it with selling doves and sacrifices. They filled it up so there was literally no space for Gentiles. So when Jesus comes to confront them and gets angry, I think it's for a bigger reason than just what they were doing in there. It's for the very fact that they had made no space for the rest of the world. I think this is an extreme danger for the church. That sometimes we get so focused on ourselves and we get so focused on what we love about church or how we like certain songs or how we like ministry or or what our church is supposed to be like that we almost forget that we're supposed to be here to make space for those who have not yet experienced God's love. And the temple courts were literally designed so the Gentiles were allowed to come in from anywhere. They were allowed to be foreigners from anywhere. And if they wanted to come and experience this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would have a space to do it within the temple. But they had pushed them out. They had filled the space with basically useless things that made Jesus a little bit angry. And so Jesus comes in. In this moment, on Palm Sunday, his triumphant entry and the very first act of him being looked at as the Savior is to kick over their religious actions that didn't make space for the people who didn't know him yet. Jesus wants us to make space for those who don't know his love yet. Most of us in this room There might be a few who you're not really sure what we're even doing here and we might seem a little crazy to you and you might be watching online and you're not sure what we're all about. But let me tell you this, most of us are here for a simple reason. We've experienced the love of God to some degree and we realize he's real in our lives and we can't help but want to be a part of it more. But what happens if we stop there is we lose the heart of God because the heart of God is for everyone to know that. Every person you've ever met, every person that could cross your mind in this moment, God's heart is for them so that they can know his love. The love that he's been displaying since the beginning of time from Genesis all the way through the the Old Testament into the New Testament on the cross and even up to 20 and 21, God is displaying his love for humanity through us. Yet sometimes we lose track of it and we don't make space. Or even worse, we fill the space up with bad things. Useless things. I've asked myself this as I've read this scripture before. Jesus, what would you turn over if you came into church today? What would you come into our church? What might you flip? Now I hope he wouldn't weave a grass whip because that's in another story. It's not in Matthew. Matthew. But in another account of the same story, he weaves a grass whip and he whips people. This is the nice, gentle Jesus we all love. But I'll tell you what, you push the wrong buttons with Jesus, and really it's, the, it's really one main button. When you push a button as religious people that excludes others from knowing the love of God, he gets pretty angry about that. I think it's probably one of the only things he really gets angry about is when his people lose track of his nature and, and, and act as if they know him, but yet they don't display him. And that's exactly what the religious culture in that day had become. They had become just a religious culture. They, did not, they no longer displayed the nature of their father in heaven. They no longer displayed the heart of Jesus to the world. They just did what made themselves feel good. What made themselves feel secure in their religion. Palm Sunday, victorious entry, Jesus flips tables. <laughs> and I honestly I read this story and I would I would rather celebrate this moment because this moment you see the nature of God that he out of everything that's happening he says there has to be room for those who don't know me yet. You know what that means? It means there's hope for all of us. We're the foreigners we're the ones that don't fit into that people of God. We're the Gentiles that God has welcomed in to his family. We're the, those that even in Romans, as Paul writes to the Romans and he teaches them about adoption and how God has adopted us as his sons and daughters and we can now call him Abba, Father. That, that is the language that God wants to display. This is his nature that he wants to display. And by Jesus coming in and even showing this emotion, this angry emotion where he gets mad at the religious leaders for forsaking this most important thing, which was having room for people who don't know him yet. Let's continue in that story just a little bit. Matthew 21, let's jump back there. And he says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called the house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. Now they're a little bit mad. First he comes in. He trashes their place. Then he starts performing these miracles. And, he, and the children are like basically praising the son of David. They don't really probably know they're even praising Jesus, but they're saying the son of David. And it says the, the leaders were indignant and they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Because really what they were feeling is that that was blasphemous. You can't say this to this man. That language is meant for the Savior, for the Messiah. And, of course, they were very, you know, pushing back on the idea that he might be the survivor, or the Savior. And so Jesus replies, yes, haven't you ever read the Scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. So listen, as I was just preparing for this, I was curious because I, I love when Jesus goes back into Scripture. Because it usually means there's so much more happening. And in this quick little story, he does it twice. He goes to Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then he jumps back, and he actually quotes another scripture from Psalm. And so I jumped back to Psalms 8. And I want to read this, because again, I think it's going to show us exactly the heart of God in the middle of this story of him. Flipping tables and challenging them that they've forgotten that this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is Psalms 8. We're going to read the whole thing together, okay? Psalms 8. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength. That's that's what Jesus was quoting, right? silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are people that you should think about them? There's this comparison happening in the story, in this psalm, right? Right? And the writer is realizing, it's David, he's realizing, my gosh, look at the stars, look at the heavens, look at nature. You remember we talked about this two weeks ago. as so we talked about Genesis and the creation of the world and how it's all for us. And literally this writer is kind of comparing, what, who are you with all of these things that you've created that you would think about us? He says, what are people that you should think about them? Mere mortals that you should care for them? Yet, you made them only a little lower than God. I want to stop there for a second. This is this verse almost sounds wrong. So I did a study on this, which I don't do all the time, but I was like, wait, I've never heard that. Said, I've never heard this scripture. Now, I have heard a scripture before that I didn't actually know came from Psalms 8 previously, That where people say, well, God made us a little lower than the angels. Maybe you've heard that or heard a weird teaching on that, maybe. But let me just say, it comes from this scripture. So let me just tell you real quick why the New Living Translation translates this as, but he only made you a little lower than God. Why? Because the word there is actually Elohim. And that is the first word written in the Bible in Genesis 1-1 that's the name for God. And when I did a little bit more reading, the reason that other translations say lower than the angels is because basically, you know, I could get really argued about with this. Basically, the first English translators didn't like it, so they said lower than angels. Because in a few other places in the Bible, that translation is also labeled heavenly beings. It doesn't ever get labeled angels anywhere else. It gets labeled labeled heavenly beings. And so they felt a little more comfortable translating this scripture as a little lower than angels. Rather than what I actually think here is God made us a little lower than himself. But we see in Genesis 1-1, who are we made in the image of? God. God. We're not him. We'll never be him. But we are his children. We're made in his image. And this psalm writer, David, is literally saying, who are we that you would think of us mere mortals, yet you only made us a little lower than God, and crowned them. He's, this is him continuing to describe humanity in God's eyes. And you crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, right? We see all this even described in Genesis 1. The birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Psalm 8 literally it's showing us this majestic idea of God yet The whole point of the psalm was to remind us of who we are to him. And for some reason, a couple thousand years later, Jesus quotes that psalm. In the midst of tipping over tables. In the midst of challenging the Jews of that day that they had forgotten the very reason for the existence of the court of Gentiles. That they had literally forgotten that foreigners and others were supposed to be included into the family of God. And he quotes this thing reminding them from Psalm 8 who we are in God's eyes. That kind of blows my mind. Maybe it's boring to you. But to think this is how God sees me, this is how God sees you, this is his nature. That everything he's done since the beginning of time is love for his creation. Everything he's done, even when we messed it up in Genesis 3 and we started to believe a different lie and we started to hear a different voice and we thought maybe we could know as much as God knows and we took that fruit and we became sinful and broken and separate from God. Even since then, God views us and everything he's done all the way up to the cross and all the way up to now is out of love for his creation. And Jesus in that moment on Palm Sunday is trying to remind the Jewish leaders that they've forgotten it. Even just through a little bit of anger and flipping of tables but then simply quoting their own scripture to say your scripture teaches this but you've forgotten it. That this is for the love of all people, not just you. Back to Matthew 21. And Jesus replies All right, haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise, quoting that psalm we just read. And then he returned to Bethany, where he stayed overnight. You see, Jesus wants us to display his nature to the world. He wants his church to be a model of what he's like to the world around us. Sometimes I think that we we end up just like the Jews did in that day. We find ourselves just fulfilling the religious duties and following all the religious you know, rules and all the things that we've just always been maybe taught since we grew up in church, and yet we've maybe forgotten that there's a very specific reason we're here. And that's to see others come to know the God that we know. It's why when you come into our church, we have it written on the wall as you walk in and coming down the hallway. We have it on our screens every, every time we show stuff. Know God. God. Because the nature of the God of the universe is simply that he wants us to know him. He's not separate from you. Maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in this room, and you think that God is so separate from your issues and your problems. I'm telling you, he's not. We often suffer from the delusion that he's going to rescue us and make everything perfect. He's not. But his promise is to be with us in the midst of it. His promises is that heaven is coming and I don't know when that actually happens but I believe that it can come today. Even as he teaches his disciples, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, yes, we are all believing for heaven to come on earth right now. But God is not separate from you. He can be known by you. And I really believe his nature it's really showing everywhere. It's just other things get loud. Even our own belief system gets a little bit loud sometimes and crowds out the nature of God, just like what happened with the Jews. We look outside and we enjoy the, the weather. And, you know, I, I, this week I was watching, actually, since last Sunday, I was wading my part of the river where I live on. It's always frozen the longest because it's like the slowest area of the river. So I, I always try to catch when the ice breaks up. And I caught it this year just as it was breaking up and it started to move down. And I just think to myself, what? This, How was heaven even better than this? I know it is, but I can't think of it. Because sometimes when we have the right mindset and the world's loudness kind of decreases and we look with God's eyes in the world around us, we realize his nature's everywhere. When I walk with my adopted son who tells me how much he loves me. I mean, Isaac is the most dramatic human being I've ever met. So one moment he's like, it's the end of the world and he's throwing a huge fit. And the next, he's deeply telling me, I mean, he just comes to me and randomly, this is almost every week, out of the blue. And he says, dad, I'm so glad you're my dad. I know you're not my real one. Like, well, that hurts. That hurts. He's like, you know what I mean. No joke, these are the conversations I have. And I look at those moments and I realize this is the nature of God. First that I can even feel the love I have for him. And that this little boy who's, who's really been through a traumatic childhood, even though he's lived with me, but he has a recognition that his parents aren't with him. His biological parents, he doesn't understand why at seven years old, but he looks to me and he's just thankful for the love that I show him in his life, that's the nature of God being displayed in this world. When we have the right eyes and the right perspective, we actually see the nature of God all around us. But so often the world's loud. <laughs> our perspective gets skewed. Our eyes get scaled and We can't see right. And sometimes it's really helpful for Jesus to come in and flip a few tables. It's really helpful for him to come into your life and maybe just give you a little kick in the pants and wake us up so that we can see how he's working. Because I promise you, no matter who you are, if you're alive today, he's working in your life. Sometimes we work against him the whole time. He's trying to help us and guide us in our life and in decisions, and we're just like, yeah, you're stupid, we're pushing him away and we're going the opposite direction. He's trying to pull us back and we work against him and then we complain when we end up in a mess. Where were you? And he's like, yeah I was here and you didn't hear me. And sometimes we can see him working and we can see those miraculous moments even when they're not big but they're these small moments where God's nature just shines. This is the God the world's looking for. They don't know it. They're probably a little confused, just like the Jews were, looking for a Messiah in a certain way, finding it in in, self-help and finding it in self-medication and trying to find all these fulfillments and different things. And we're always looking for God in some way, but usually we're finding him in the wrong ways. But Jesus is saying this morning, just look at me, I am where the answer is. And he comes into that room and he flips those tables and he's des. You know, when you read the scriptures, I mean, gosh, some of the ones. Let me just go a few more scriptures later. And Jesus says this to them: "I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do." Ouch, Jesus. <laughs> Chill, man. <laughs> And he kind of, he's a little bit brutal to the religious people, but you know what? I almost think it's more out of a desperation than a, than a real anger towards them. Have you ever said anything harsh to someone out of love? Maybe it doesn't come across that way. Maybe it doesn't seem that way. But you're desperate for them to hear you. You're desperate for them to see life a little differently and to not make the same choices they've been always making that are ruining their life. And so sometimes you speak harshly or directly and painfully into someone's life. I think Jesus was doing that even to his religious people. And I think as religious people, we're supposed to invite a little bit of directness from Jesus at times. I tell Jesus all the time, Jesus, you know I don't hear well. Hit me hard. Slap me hard if I need to be. Like, I want to hear what you're doing, what you're saying. So as Christians, sometimes we can get a little bit myopic in those ways. But yet the nature of Jesus is always out of love for us, for his people, all people. Romans 5.10, we're going to end here today. Why don't we all stand? Paul writes it this way. We'll start actually back in verse eight. It said, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You know, we've described sin here so many times, I'm probably just gonna continue to do it because I don't, when we say the word sinner, I don't want people to feel repulsed by that. The word sinner simply means to be separate from from the design that God's created you to be. It's when we miss the mark on our design. It's when we miss the mark in our lives when we make decisions or make choices. And I think all of us can say, yeah, we've missed the mark. That's that's what the word meant, sin. And yet while we were still sinners, while we were still living in our broken design, messed up and separate from God, Paul writes... But God showed you his great love by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Listen, you might feel separate from God this morning. You might feel distant from him. You might feel like he's distant from you. And you know, it's really common for Jewish leaders in those days, and and Paul kind of grew up actually as a, a rabbi training under a really smart rabbi, actually. And so he had this kind of way of saying things that was purposely supposed to be hyperbolistic, meaning extreme. And so he makes these deep contrasts to make a point. And he says that while we were still his enemies, God called us his friends. These are the deep contrasts, friends and enemies. And actually the word enemy there really just means opposing to. I think many of us could say, yeah, I've been opposed to God before. I've opposed him working in my life. I've opposed his his reaching into my heart. I've opposed his speaking into my mind. I've opposed him many times in my life. I do that still. Yet while we oppose him, he calls us his friends. That's grace. That's what Jesus accomplishes on that cross. That's what we're gonna talk about Friday when he took our sin and all our brokenness on him and killed it with him. And yet, three days later we get to rise in new life with Jesus. But it's available to all us all the time. It's available to every person all the time. New life. Justin quoted a scripture that he came to give us life and life more abundant. It literally just meant life overflowing. Isn't that the kind of life we want? Not the just getting by kind. Not the just scraping through kind or the barely making it kind. But literally the life that is overflowing, that's the life Jesus has for you. That's the life he came to accomplish. It's the life he came to remind the Jews of as he flipped those tables on Palm Sunday. It's the life that he paid for that we're going to celebrate on Friday. And it's the life he made possible by being resurrected that we celebrate next Sunday. And you want to know how you get it? You simply say, I want it, Jesus. Wherever you are right now, I want to challenge you. If you don't think you have that life inside you, whether you're watching online or you watch this later or you're in this room, if you don't think... Or if you don't know is what I should say because you should know. I know. I'm not worried if I die today of what the next moment's going to be like. I picture it kind of like I die, I'm standing with Jesus and I'm like, oh, hey, glad I talked to you earlier. Because that's what it should be like. You should know, and if you don't know this morning, you simply have to start by saying, "God, I want to know, and I want that." That's all you have to do right now in your seat, wherever you're at. Say it right now. I, I I'm giving you a moment. Whoever you are, wherever you're at in your life, I want this, Jesus. I want to follow you, God. There's so many words you can say. There's so many ways to start that journey. But I'm telling you, just start it this morning. Don't wait. Don't wonder. And this is what I love about God. This is what I love about Jesus. When we invite him in, he comes. Sometimes in ways we don't expect. Sometimes in you know, ways that we're a little bit scared by even, but he comes and it's always what we need. So let him in this morning. So I'm going to pray right now. And maybe if you haven't said that already, I would just ask you, whisper it to yourself. If you're watching online, whisper it to yourself. Comment it on there. I want this. I want to follow you, Jesus. I really believe God just like Elaine kind of shared during worship God wants to do something incredible today in all of us and maybe you've been a Christian you've been following God for a long time and in this moment the challenge for you is this God I want to make space for others I want to make space so that the world has room to know you can we do that together Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you for what you've accomplished. God, we thank you for the celebration of this day, Palm Sunday, a couple thousand years ago as you came into the city, kind of in this triumphant manner, and people began to believe that you might be the Messiah, but really that your first act was to say, you've forgotten that this is for everyone. God, we want to receive that today. God, if we've forgotten in any way who we are supposed to be and how we're supposed to have room for others and God, if we've maybe replaced that space for the rest of the world with other things, God, we ask you right now, we give you permission. Flip some tables in our hearts. Flip some tables in our lives, God. Point out where we've maybe made mistakes and where we've missed that mark in showing the world who you are. And God, I pray today that everyone listening and watching, everyone in this room would see the nature of your heart for them through that action. That when you came into the temple, the most important thing for you was that that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. That all people were supposed to be included in your kingdom, in your family. So, God, include us all today. God, if we're watching, if we don't know you yet, Jesus, God, as people simply whisper those words or say those words out loud, God, I need you, I want you, I want to follow you. God, as people whisper that this morning, God, I pray right now that you would come into their life and you would show them your love. God, let your love wash over their situations, over their families, over their mind. God, we ask right now for a renewed mindset in every person in this room, God. For renewed um, hope and joy in people's lives. God, we ask right now that the fruits of you living inside us would actually start to take root. God, would actually start to be fruits. That people would see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So, God, we ask right now for your blessing over every person. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that every action from the beginning of time to the end, as we understand it, has been out of love for your creation. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to read these couple questions to you as we finish today. How have you come to know God's love for you? I want you to think about that. And how are we called to make space for those seeking the love of God? Let's be a church that reflects His nature, shall we? All right. Amen. Have a blessed Palm Sunday. Look forward to seeing you next week. Bring your friends with you. um, We'll celebrate together what God's done. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.